For 40 years, the Jewish people lived in the Midbar. We ate mun, that was our daily bread, literally that came from the sky, landed right in front of a person's tent. And when Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Jewish nation, you're going to now go into Eretz Yisrael, there are going to be major changes. One of those changes is, when you'll settle in the land, and your borders will expand, you'll have opulence, you'll have plenty, as Hashem told you, and then you'll say, then you'll say, I want to eat meat, you'll desire to eat meat, wherever you want, you could eat meat. Meaning, in the Midbar, the only place the Jews could eat meat was when they brought a carbon, which was rare. Now you're going to Eretz Yisrael, now you'll be able to eat meat. But the Pasuk is very clear. When your borders expand, and when you'll have plenty, when you'll have excess, that's when you should desire meat, that's when you'll say you'll eat meat, and when that happens, you can eat meat wherever you want. Now Rashi is troubled by the seeming dependence that when your borders will expand, meaning when you'll have wealth, that's when you will desire meat. It seems to be that the wealth causes desire. Rashi is troubled by that. Rashi explains, Lamda Torah Derech Eretz. The Torah is teaching you Derech Eretz. Torah is teaching us etiquette. Torah is teaching us proper decorum. A person should not desire eating meat. Until he reaches a state where he has wealth and he has expanse. Torah is teaching us decorum. Torah is teaching us proper politeness. And that a person should not desire eating meat until he has wealth, until he has expanse. Once that happens, then he could desire. Before that, he should not desire eating meat. And that's what Rashi tells us. And I'd like to ask what I consider the obvious question on this Rashi. It seems that Rashi is saying that do not desire meat until you have wealth. Now, number one, desire is something that's innate to the human. What do we don't desire? I, meat looks, smells delicious. I pass a Wendy's. It smells good. What am I going to tell you? It, 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 it I desire it. I may not eat it, but but what do you mean don't desire? And not only is that a problem, what do you mean don't desire? What's wrong with desiring meat? Let's assume for a minute I can't afford it. I'm not yet at a point of Rechav Yadaim, I'm not yet wealthy, and okay, I can't afford it. What's wrong with desiring meat? What Rashi is saying is that the Torah is telling us it's not derecheret, it's not polite, it's not proper to desire eating meat until you could afford it Number one, I didn't know that that's something you can control your desires. And number two, what's wrong? Let's assume I desire meat and I can't afford it. Okay, why is the Torah telling me don't do that? What's the problem? This sounds very difficult to understand. And to understand, in fact, what Rashi is sharing with us, I'd like to sort of take a step back and understand some of the features of this entity called the human being. And to do that, I'll share with you an interesting observation. For millennium, mankind worked for his daily bread. The average person had barely enough to eat, and typically throughout the ages, people were real thin. As a matter of fact, if you saw a person in earlier generations, let's say 200 years ago, 500 years ago for sure, who was heavy, who was corpulent, it was a sign of wealth. Why? Because if a man had enough to eat, not just to feed himself, but to actually put on weight, it meant he was a sign that he was a wealthy person. As a matter of fact, they say when a balbosser would walk into the shtibel, a very corpulent man would walk into shul, 
people say, ooh, that's a rich man, he must be a wealthy guy. It was a sign of honor. And in many cultures, being corpulent, being large, being heavy, was not just a sign of wealth and of honor, it was considered something beautiful, attractive in women. In many cultures, a large woman, the larger, the more attractive, it was considered something that was very, very desirable, very attractive. In ancient Greece, it was considered a sign of attraction. In the Pacific Island cultures, large women, heavy, was considered, again, a sign of beauty. And there's even stories of African kings who would so fatten up their wives, who would make sure they were so overweight that they literally couldn't walk. There was one African king who wouldn't marry a woman until she literally was that heavy, because again, that was a sign of beauty, and only such a beauty is fit for a king. Now, the reason I share that with you is because that's not the society we live in. If you talk to a shadchan, and you notice that the shadchan starts using euphemisms, as in she, the young woman has a lot of chen, of a girl, what you almost understand is that she's not slim. And a shadchan will not tell you she's overweight, because in our society, being overweight is not a sign of beauty at all. Thin is in. But here's the point. Thin or fat are not innately beautiful or ugly. It's a learnt culture. It's something that was schooled in, and something that society, for various reasons, will deem beautiful or not. But it's not innate. It's not like fat is beautiful, thin is beautiful. Each one is learnt, each one is determined by the culture that we live in. I'll give you another interesting example. For millennia, being tanned was considered a sign of a worker, a laborer, and it was considered a sign of lower class. The laborers had to work in the field, and their skin was constantly exposed to the sun, and as a result, they were tanned, they were dark, and it was considered a sign of low class, it was considered a sign of something to avoid. As a matter of fact, fashionable women in Europe would paint their skin white in the 1700s, even the 1800s. Women wore bonnets, they wore parasols. In many of the Oriental cultures, women would constantly walk around with umbrellas to shield themselves from the sun, because again, it was considered a sign of beauty to be pale white. In our culture, that's not the way at all. There are 25,000 tanning salons in this country, despite the known dangers of engaging in such behavior because being bronze, being tanned, is a sign of beauty. But being dark-skinned or light-skinned is not innately beautiful or the opposite. It's something that's learned and determined by the culture, determined by people. It's not something that's innate in and of itself. And as an example of this, I want you to imagine the following. Imagine you had a young man who was brought up in China. From the time he was an infant, he was brought up amongst Chinese people, and that's all he ever saw. He only saw sticks, straight black hair, he only saw slanty eyes, women are very slim built, and that's who he grew up amongst. He gets a little bit older, let's say he turns 18, he turns 20, he comes to New York to go to yeshiva, and someone reads his shidduch, someone says, I have a match for you, and he goes out on a date, and he comes back after the date, and Shantra uh, said, so how was it? Well, it was fine, but, I mean, she was so big, and, and that hair, what kind of... It was yellow, and those eyes, they weren't slanty at all. You see, if he was brought up amongst Orientals, and that's all he saw, that would become beautiful, and that would become desirous, 
Because you see, desire is innate, but what we desire is learnt. Tastes are developed, <coughs> culture teaches us, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes without even being aware of it, <coughs> we learn to desire certain things. And those desires also change at different points. And I'll give you a very interesting example. If you have a 14-year-old son, and he is attracted to a 12-year-old girl, that's normal, it's healthy. Obviously, you want to make sure he doesn't get involved in any way because it's not good for him, okay? But it's certainly a sign of him being a normal, healthy young man. Now, what if that same 14-year-old turned 45 and he's still attracted to 12-year-old girls? We have a problem on our hand. Now, wait, I don't understand it. When he was 14, it was very normal. What happened that all of a sudden... When he's 45, if he's still attracted to 12-year-old girl, he's suddenly perverse. The answer is because your tastes are supposed to change. As you mature, as you grow up, your tastes change because you see desire in a person is innate, is inborn. But what you desire can be cultured, can be trained, can be learned. And this is a very, very important yesod for growth in many areas. Desire is inborn, but what we desire is learnt, trained, and can be molded. One more step. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're on a deserted, find yourself shipwrecked on a deserted island. No one there, nothing. And you can't find a morsel of food. There's plenty of water, plenty of lakes, plenty of streams, but not a morsel of food. You search high and low, up and down. First day, can't find anything. Second day, has been three days without a morsel of food. You're starving. You're starving. And there you see a tree, and right under the tree, a bag folded up. You open the bag, and in it you see a dried peanut butter sandwich. It's been baking in the sun for six months. It's crumbly. It's acrid. And you find yourself holding the peanut butter sandwich, and you gulp it down faster than probably you've ever eaten anything in your life before. Now let's analyze what happened over there. You had tremendous appetite to eat that peanut butter sandwich. Tremendous desire. But here's the question. How much pleasure did you have? I don't believe that for the rest of your life you're going to think back, oh, the delicious taste of the smelly, acrid peanut butter as it scratched my throat going down. You had very little pleasure from that activity but you had an awful lot of desire. And this is a distinction that people fail to make over and over and over. Desire, appetite, hunger, those are the drives that pull you to something. Pleasure is the amount of enjoyment that you had in that given activity. And those two are distinct. Passion and pleasures are very, very different. And one of the problems that we human beings get into is that we often confuse the two, and we assume if there's a major passion, a huge desire for something, it must be hugely pleasurable. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. And I'll share with you an interesting example. I was involved with a, was at a Shabbaton for what was known then as Youth at Risk, and there was a mentor there who I asked to speak. I asked to speak because these fellows were experimenting with drugs, and this mentor was 28, had been addicted to drugs, and he had cleaned himself up, and he was now a mentor, and I asked him 
to present what it was like. And he describes what using heroin was like. He said the first time he got high, there was nothing in his life that ever came close to it. The most incredible experience, more pleasure than he could ever imagine having. And then, the next time he tried to match that high, but he couldn't get that high. So he tried more drugs, and he tried it more, but he could never match that first high. And he kept trying and trying, using and using, until he got hooked, and he got addicted, and he became a serious user, and after a while he found himself in a very, very difficult situation. He described that he desperately needed drugs, but they no longer had any impact. He no, no longer could get high. He would be using, <coughs> needing, craving, and not be able to get high. And he describes waking up in a, excuse my expression, a puddle of his own vomit, and realizing that he had hit bottom. Because he craved, desperately needed drugs, they did nothing for him, but he couldn't shake that desire, that need. And I think that's a classic example of desire not being correlated necessarily to pleasure. And desire, appetite, hunger is the drive. Pleasure is the enjoyment that you get out of it. And I believe that's exactly what Rashi is sharing with us. The Torah is the formula for self-perfection. That means we're put on the planet to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me. But our Creator wants us to enjoy our stay in this world as well. Granted, we're created for the world to come. <clears throat> Granted, this is the corridor, this is but the gym in front of the spa. But our Creator wants us to enjoy our stay on this planet. And the Torah is not just the system of self-perfection for the world to come. It's the system to enjoy yourself to the maximum in this world. And what the Torah is teaching us is derech eretz. <clears throat> if you have a desire and you can't fulfill it, you're hungry, and you can't meet that hunger. You have an appetite, but you can't satisfy it. That puts you in a situation that you're not happy, and you're not satisfied, you're uncomfortable, and the Torah doesn't want you to be uncomfortable. And Rashi's teaching us, the Torah is teaching us, that Hashem wants us to be satisfied, to be happy, and to have a desire that you cannot meet means you're unhappy, unnet unmet need, something that you can't fulfill, there's going to be a lack within you, and the Torah is teaching us derech eretz, etiquette, decorum that's not the way a Jew should be a Jew should be shalim happy, fulfilled and this is a great principle I believe that Rashi is teaching us you see, what Rashi is teaching us is that the Torah wants us to be happy and there's a very real system to attain that happiness when a person follows the Torah system, it's not just that he grows, not just that he becomes a much greater person, he himself is much more balanced, and much more happy, and much more of a complete person. And I believe there are a number of applications of this concept. Let's begin with the more basic ones. We'll do this first for men, and then we'll do it for women, and then we'll expand this a little bit. Let's begin with the following. Every one of us has a challenge in this world. For one person it might be anger, for another person it might be jealousy, another person might be arrogance, another person might be laziness. But while each of us have our particular and unique challenge, I believe the fight of our generation today for men especially is desire. It is no longer a sane, normal society, and when you go out there in the street 
you see women in all states of undress and improper behavior, improper conduct, and you can't help but be bombarded by scenes, by pictures, by images. And one of the great challenges for a man who wants to be happy in our generation is to train his eyes to look where they're supposed to and not look where they're not supposed to. Now, for a single fellow, it is quite a difficult challenge because he doesn't really have an outlet. And in that sense, his challenge is not to think those thoughts, not to look, and to really remain where he's supposed to be. When I was a young fellow growing up, it was a safe haven. The base medrash, at least, was a safe place. And nowadays, even that's not safe. There's Wi-Fi. You're not protected anywhere. And it is a major challenge. But once a fellow gets married, now the battle changes. Why? Because you see, the desire is going to be there, but now he's married, and now his job is to train his eye to see his wife as beautiful, to train his eye to be attracted to his wife. You see, desire is innate. You're not going to change desire. You could work on anger, and you could work on jealousy, and you can change those traits. But desire is innate, inborn to the human. And you're not going to stop desire. You're not going to pull it back. But you can marshal it. You can change what you desire. Desire can't be changed, but what you desire can. And when a young man gets married, that's when the game changes. And suddenly his work is much more focused on training his eyes to see his wife as beautiful, and training his eye to see his wife as attractive, not looking anywhere else and specifically looking at his wife. And that's a big part of his avoda, to train himself to desire his wife and no other woman. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work. I had a discussion once, a young man uh, <clears throat> called me up, he has a shalom bias problem. What's shalom bias problem? He's married six months, and his wife, she's not attractive. Her face is shaped funny. I'm, I'm, I'm just not attracted to her. Now, I was a little curious because it didn't make a lot of sense. He's only married six months. He doesn't find his life attractive. So I asked him, tell me, when you were dating, when you were going out, did you find her attractive? Yeah. Okay. Now something didn't add up. So I dug a little bit and I discovered the great secret. And there was a reason why he no longer found his wife attractive because this young man was spending about an hour a day on his phone watching things that were very, very inappropriate. And what he was doing unbeknownst to him was training himself in desiring other women. And when you look at another woman with desire, you're training yourself to desire her. And suddenly your wife is no longer so attractive. And one of the big avodas of a young man, and any age man today, is to train his eye to find his wife attractive. To me, this is a woman... And this is a beautiful beauty, and no one else is. And by the way, the Sefer Chinuch explains that's a major part of Shana Rishona. The Sefer Chinuch says the reason why the Chassan and Kala should spend as much time together during their first year is so that a young man should train himself to see this is a woman, and only this is a woman. And this is the way a woman walks, and this is the way a woman conducts herself, and this is the way a woman walk is. He should train his eye to see his wife as a woman to the extent that no one else is a woman. This alone is a woman. And again, the reason for this is, is because desire is inborn. But what you desire can be changed. And for men, that's the one lesson to learn from here. For women, there's a corollary. 
an observation worth thinking about. With all due respect to our fine Beishakov women today, if you go to many shuls and you go to many simchas, you'll find, unfortunately, women today dressing in a way that is so inappropriate, so not modest that it's frightening. Now, she might meet the letter of the law. The sleeve length might be the right length. The dress might be the right length. But either the tightness or the provocativeness, and in ways that are just so inappropriate. I'm not that old, but I can tell you things have changed dramatically, and it's no longer polite, no longer respectable. It's often, excuse my expression, plain disgusting. Now, here's the observation. Why would a fine young woman, trained in a Beishakov, understand Sneas, want to have people ogle her? Do you think she's saying to herself, I want men to look at me with desire. I want them to look at me like I'm a slut, and to think inappropriate thoughts about me. I don't believe a single one of our Bejakov graduates have that in mind. So why do they dress that way? And the answer is, it has nothing to do with that concept. You see, it's women dress the way other women dress. To a woman, much of our identity revolves around the way she looks. Beauty is innate to a woman and very important to a woman. The way she appears is very important to her. And women consider it very, very important that they dress well. Well, what's the determinant of how well you dress? Your peer group, whoever you look up to, who's ever within your circle. And if everyone is wearing tighter than tight, and everyone is wearing more provocative than provocative, well, I too have to fit in. And you see, for a young woman in our generation, it's not a test of tzniyas. It's a test of being able to stand against the trend, to stand against the peer group and be able to say, I'm secure enough, I hold myself enough, I don't have to fit in. And I believe that's a Nisayan that most women will fail. And so I have a little etza. If you find yourself in that problem, I have a very simple solution. You're not going to change desire because you're deeply going to desire fitting in. You're going to want to be a part of the peer group because that's natural. And the only way you're going to easily win this battle is by picking friends that have share your goals, your values. And it may mean changing your group and changing slowly the people you associate with because it's natural for all of us to want to fit in. It's natural to want to be a part of the group. And if the people you look up to, the people you associate with dress one way, it's only expected, it's only natural, you're going to dress that same way. And the only way to do that is to change your peer group, change your friends. Because again, the desire to fit in is innate. And you're not going to stand against the tide. It takes a gibar chayil. Very few people have that gvura. But it's a lot easier to change friends and change peer groups. And it may sound strange, do you just pick your friends? The answer is you do. Slowly you associate with different types of people you go to different types of events and you create a peer group that's very different because we all need to fit in. And again, this is the concept. Desire is innate to the human, but what you desire can be changed. In a man, it's in regards to that area of desire. For a woman, it's in regards to changing the peer group so she fits in and changes how she wants to dress. And I believe that alone is a very important concept and would be worth understanding. However, I think there's a much bigger concept for us to learn from this Rashi. 
you see, when Rashi tells us that desire is innate, but what you desire is learned, and the Torah is teaching us, Derech Eretz, don't desire meat when you can't afford it because you're going to be unhappy. You're going to have wants that you can't fulfill. You're going to have desires that you can't meet, and that will lead you to unhappiness, and the Torah wants you to be happy. It's not Derech Eretz. I believe that concept has a much bigger application in our day and age. And to understand that, let me share with you one interesting observation. We have arrived. There is no question, according to every index, we have financially, economically, in terms of material possessions, we have arrived. There has never been a generation that's wealthier, never been a generation that has more abundance, more opulence. We have so much more in material possessions and wealth and luxuries than any generation before. If you would take people 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they would not envision or imagine your wealth beyond all indexes, beyond all descriptions, we have arrived. And yet, astonishingly, everyone you meet has a problem. They don't have enough money. I can't afford. I just don't have enough. And everyone you meet is either in debt or trying to figure out how to get out of debt and trying to figure out how to not get into debt because we need, we need, we need. And it's astonishing. We have so much abundance and so much in terms of material goods and possessions. We outshine any other generation by tenfold, by a hundredfold. And yet it seems that we're needier than any other generation before. And it is a bit odd. And I'd like to explore this a little bit. And to understand why this is, let's begin with a bracha we say daily. Every single day, a Jew is supposed to say this blessing with an outpouring of an emotion. Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed be you God. Elokeinu, our God. Melech Olam, King of the universe. Sha'asali kol you made for me all of my needs. All of my needs are met. Every need that I have is met. Now, how do we say that bracha today? When none of our needs are met, and we are astonishingly poor. So I believe we have to do a little work to understand how we got ourselves into this predicament. For millennium, mankind worked for his needs, to put a roof over his head, and put food on his table, put clothes on his back, that's what people work for, those are needs housing, clothing, food those are needs, and for thousands of years, mankind worked, bring home the bacon put bread on the table those were the themes, and that's what drove people to work now, the industrial revolution changed things to a rather dramatic extent because suddenly factories began sprouting up that produced material goods in abundance, where it used to take a housewife weeks and weeks to weave the material and then to sew a shirt, and now a factory could produce that very shirt hundreds an hour, and suddenly people began coming from the farms to the cities, and more factories began forming, and production began churning out in terms of clothing, furniture, material, tools, and suddenly in abundance things were beginning to be spread 
And the Industrial Revolution changed the opulence of most people. And that continued in an interesting manner until the 1920s in America, because that's when mass production really took form. Because you see, as of the 1920s in America, suddenly you had factories that were producing in such abundance that they found a problem. There were just not enough people who needed what they could produce. And they were producing so many cars, so many refrigerators, so many suits, that it was beyond the consumption of people. And that created a problem for many factory owners and many business people because the factories were now capable of producing far more than people needed. And that meant the end of the growth of the economy, end of the growth of that factory's continued growth. And so a new entity took form, and that's something called advertising. And suddenly there became a major push to advertise products. And suddenly every magazine had ads in it, every radio show had ads in it, every newspaper had ads. And what advertising did was something very, very interesting. Initially, ads were really there to just let people know about products that were available. But you see, here was the problem. Knowing that something is available isn't going to tempt me to buy it because I don't need it. I may see it. It may look nice. Having a three-legged stove may be wonderful if I'm using a fireplace, but I'm not spending my hard-earned money for something that I don't need. And advertising began realizing, and this is one of the great hops of Madison Avenue, that it's not enough to let people know that there are things available. You have to create a need. You have to create in the person a need for this product. And suddenly the ads took on a whole new tone. You need this new model refrigerator because it will do this for you. And suddenly you saw people with smiling, very attractive models next to the refrigerator showing that you will get this good life if you get this refrigerator. And what ads began selling was no longer things that you want, but things that you need. In the United States of America today, advertising has become a major industry. Approximately $250 billion a year are spent on ads. And if you can imagine any format, any place for an ad to be, I guarantee it will be there. It's in print, it's in television, it's on radio, it's in movies, it's outdoor, it's mobile, it's online. How about getting gas? And you'll see ads running on the gas pump. How about in the supermarket and they have those screens up? You cannot go anywhere, you cannot be anywhere without being assaulted, bombarded by a constant influx of things that you absolutely, positively need to be happy. And you'll see the smiling faces of influencers. Because I have this product, I am so happy. You too can have my joy and my happiness. And even more than that, don't you deserve it? Don't you deserve the best? <clears throat> Shouldn't you have it? And if you focus on the amount of money and the amount of intelligence and wisdom that is pumped into ads in this country, it is mind-boggling. Amazon spends a mere $7 billion a year. <clears throat> AT&T spends $5.5 billion. Walt Disney spends $3 billion. <clears throat> Verizon spends $3 billion. American 
American Express spends $3 billion a year telling you how you can have the good life, the gold card, the platinum. You deserve it because it's a priceless moment. And if you don't think it works, $250 billion says it works. And my friends, we find ourselves in a very, very interesting situation. We are now called by economists the consumer generation. But I want you to understand what a consumer is. A consumer is one who consumes, who eats, gobbles up, ravishes, who devours. You see, it's not just planned obsolescence. It's not just that refrigerators have a 10-year life and then they no longer function. You're taught to desire, to need, no longer to want, but you have constant needs and you're constantly going to be bombarded and assailed with needs for more and needs for more. Buy this one, get rid of it. Buy that one, get rid of it. How many iPhone iterations have there been out since it started? 2007 till now is not that long. And every new iPhone, I got to have it. The earbuds, I got to have it. I absolutely need it. That car, hey, come on. I can't drive a Camry. That's like that's for rabbis. I need a come on a Tesla at least. Come on, it's self-driving. I mean, I I I need that. And two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year are spent on training you to need, 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 need. And guess what? I guarantee you do not have enough money. And because no matter how much money you have, there are bigger needs. Newer needs, more needs, and you are guaranteed to be unhappy. You are guaranteed to be unsatisfied because it is an untold amount of new needs that you'll be constantly assaulted with, constantly bombarded with, and what you're dealing with is materialism in the ultimate level where we become consumers, constantly assailed with new needs, new desires, things we have to have. But it really gets even worse than that. Because materialism becomes a social construct. And what I mean by that is, we begin rating each other by what type of car we drive, and what type of suit we wear. My house is 6,000 square feet. And my lawn is two and a half acres. I drive a Tesla. And my wardrobe, when you begin rating yourself based on your material possessions, this now becomes competitive acquisition. We become the ultimate consumer, but no longer a consumer is just hungry and needs, and now a consumer who considers his value system what he consumes. And it was Forbes who coined the phrase, but it is a very apt phrase for our society, he who wins with the most toys, he who dies with the most toys wins. That was Forbes' bracha to modern man. And this concept, I believe, is very, very pervasive and very, very telling because it affects all of us. We're no longer dealing with conspicuous consumption where you show off how wealthy you are based on what you can acquire. And we're dealing with competitive consumption where I prove my dominance, prove my social stature and based on the size of my house, the way my outfits look, the car that I drive, the bar mitzvah that I make, the wedding that I make. What do you mean? I'm going to have a wedding in, just in a takana hall? It's not past, not proper. It's not, you can't do that. And I'm afraid to tell you there's a corollary to this. You see, we are the chosen nation. And we do have this sense 
and that we are supposed to be better than the Gentiles. And I'm sorry to tell you that sometimes it seems to manifest itself in a very peculiar way, where our materialism is better than the Gentiles. And it is true, I'll grant you, Jews are bright, Jews are smart, they're very good in business, I grant you. And for whatever reason, Hashem gives us a bracha. But when you see every Jew dressing fancier, driving nicer cars, bigger homes, fancier homes, now don't get me wrong, we need, you have to live like a man, you have to have a house, you have to have a car. I'm not saying to live in poverty, but what I'm discussing is the level of materialism, the opulence, the spending for stature, the spending because I'm a, I wouldn't be caught dead in that kind of car, that kind of house, for a person of my stature. And what happens is a very, very interesting thing. It becomes a religion. And I'm sad to say that many times you see the chosen nation acting in a way where you would think the religion is gold, and that's what they worship. And if you'd like to understand the cost of this, I'll share with you one interesting observation. Here's a very, very relevant question to ask people that you hang out with, that you associate with, that you're friends with. What I call the very deep philosophical question of the 21st century, and that is, are you happy? Are you happy? You got it all! I mean, the phenomenal job. You own your own business. You're doing, making money hand over fist. You live in a gorgeous mansion in Flatbush. Your kids are all dressed to the tees. It's unbelievable. Are you happy? And I have a personal guarantee. The answer is no. But how am I so confident? I'll share with you how I'm so confident. Because you see, Hashem created us to grow and accomplish Hashem put us on a planet to change the essence of I. Hashem gave us a Torah, the spiritual guidebook for self-perfection. And when you lead your life in accordance to the way your Creator created you, there's an inner harmony and an inner peace. But if you lead your life against what your Creator made you to do, there's a disharmony, there's an inner strife, and it's akin to taking a surgical blade If you take a very fine scalpel and use it to pry open a window, it does a poor job and it dulls a blade. If you use a human being who was created to grow and accomplish, to change the essence of him, and you pursue anything else other than growth, what you're going to find is an emptiness within. Because you can pursue and pursue and want and want, but you're not meeting that very deep, real need in your soul. And there'll be a hole in your soul and you'll try to fill it with money and gold and glitter and diamonds, but it's going to be ever empty. So number one in our competitive consumerism, the first problem is that the essence of I, I'm empty, and there's an emptiness inside. But there's another reason why I'm destined to be unhappy, and that is because all the money in the world cannot buy what I need. Because whatever it is that I can buy, there's ever new needs ever new things, and it's only a moment till what I want becomes a need, becomes something that I have to have, and the minute I acquire it, there's new and there's better, and you can never, ever, ever meet all of your needs. In a consumer generation, in a consumer environment, where we are each competitively involved in materialism, you cannot possibly meet all of your needs All the money in the world can't meet those needs because there will be ever new needs, ever new needs, and you will be ever unhappy. 
And there's another problem that this brings. I cannot tell you how many people have either said it explicitly or implied it. You know, Hashem clearly doesn't love me. Hashem doesn't love me. You know, Rabbi, you say Hashem loves It's not true. Hashem doesn't love me. And it's obvious. Why? Because I'm not rich. If Hashem really loved me, I'd be wealthy. I'd be phenomenal. But look at me. i got to work hard for a living. I barely can pay my bills. And obviously Hashem, I don't find favor in Hashem's eye. I don't know why, but Hashem doesn't love me. And after hearing this time after time after time, I'd like to share with you, it's not quite reality. Many a times I mentioned the Chovah Zavavah says that Hashem will give wealth to a person for three reasons. It's either a bracha, a nesayan, or a klala. It's either a bracha, it's a blessing that Hashem gives him, or it's a test, it's an nesayan, or it's a curse. And you can tell, says the Chovah Zavavah, how a person uses it, which one it is. If a person is granted wealth, and he suddenly turns to Avodah Hashem, he learns more, he dominates more, takes care of his family better, he's involved in his community, you see a person who is given a bracha. If you see a person who makes money, and suddenly his business, he used to put in 8 hours a day, now it's 10 hours a day, suddenly it's 12 hours a day, you're looking at a person who's giving an assign, a life test. And if you see a person who begins getting involved in materialism, in possessions, and in buying the yacht, buying the luxury cars, you're looking at a person who's cursed. You're looking at a person who's using up his world to come in this world. Now that used to scare me. But the Derech Hashem says something that is absolutely frightening beyond that. You see, none of us are Rishayim. So I don't believe Hashem is going to pay any of us back, my Olam Haba in this world, and that I'll be snuffed out and have nothing to come. I don't believe any of us are, are there. But you know what the Derech Hashem explains? The Derech Hashem explains that it could be that you've done something amazing in your life. Maybe you started a stuck organization. Maybe you learned a number of years in yeshiva very well. Maybe you saved somebody's life. You did something amazing. And because of that, you deserve a portion in the world to come amongst the great people. But for whatever which reason, Hashem feels you're not worthy of that. In that situation, Hashem will shower you with wealth and give you that extra portion in the world to come so that instead of in the world to come, you're being in the front row, you'll be way, way in the back because Hashem feels you're not worthy. And before you go assume that wealth is such a bracha, take a deep breath. Because it's only a bracha if you actually use it properly, if you're actually able to do with it what you're supposed to do. And don't go assuming if Hashem loved me, Hashem would give me, shower me with wealth. Many a person has been ruined, many a person has been destroyed. But more than that, it's not the measure of love. The child says to the father, if you'd love me, you'd give me what I want. And that's the childlike attitude. But the adult understands that not everything that you want is good for you. Not everything that you desire is for your benefit. And the father will say to the son, it's because I love you that I'm not giving this to you. Because it's not good for you. But if Hashem loved me, He'd give me a mansion. He'd give me. Hashem will give you your needs. But that which you desire may not be so good for you. But I'd like to share with you a way to actually be happy. Would you like to actually be happy in our generation and be happy in this wealth? I have a way, it's maybe a chiddush, but I believe it works. And if you follow this, I believe you'll be happy. 
the first thing you have to do is rather obvious, and that is you have to ask yourself before you make a purchase, before you make any decision, is this a want or is it a need? Do I want it or do I need it? Do I want it or do I need it? You see, there's nothing wrong, and not only there's nothing wrong, it's 100% cor- correct if you could afford it to meet your needs. Certainly you have to be a mensch, you have to live in a nice home, have to dress appropriately, and if you could afford it, there's certainly nothing wrong with meeting your needs. And if Hashem grants you that, you buy what you need. But what you need is what you need. What you want is not necessarily what you need. And that distinction between what you want and what you need seems to get very, very fuzzy. But that's not my chiddush. I have a chiddush that some people may absolutely... It could be you'll fall off your chair when you hear this chiddush. Are you ready? Are you ready for this one? Here we go. In the world, there are things called needs. In the world, there are things called wants. But there's a whole different category. There's needs, there's wants, and there are luxuries. Luxuries are things that you absolutely, totally, completely do not need, shouldn't want, and they're considered things that are really not appropriate. But why are they not appropriate? Because you don't need it. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to allow you to serve your Creator better. It's not going to allow you to fulfill your mission on this planet better. It's going to distract you. And it's going to put blinders in front of your eyes. Don't worry about it. I can buy the car and not be swept up in it. I can handle it. <clears throat> Luxuries are things to avoid. <clears throat> Wants are things that you want. Needs are things that you need. And luxuries are things to avoid. Now, like all pleasures in this world, pleasures used appropriately are good, are proper, are holy. So the Sharm explains to us that pleasures are to be used as tools to serve my Creator. If there's a minor luxury and you want to use it as a tool, for maybe for Shalom Bayes, maybe for Menuchas and Nefesh, you're using it as a tool, that's fine. But understand that luxuries are in a whole other category. <clears throat> Needs are things you need. Wants are things that you're sold by $250 billion a year of advertising. And luxuries are in a whole different category. <clears throat> luxuries are things you don't need, shouldn't want, maybe occasionally on small scale to use as a tool, <clears throat> but they're in a whole other category. I think this Rashi is sharing with us a fundamental concept. Hashem wants us to be happy. A Jew is supposed to be satisfied, and the Torah says, don't desire meat until you can afford it. Why? Because it's not derech eretz. To be hungry with unmet needs, you're not going to be shalom, you're not going to be complete. You're going to be wanting and not being able to meet it, and the Torah doesn't want that. Things that we desire, we learn. It used to be that fat was very desirous, now it's very skinny. It's not innate. Desire is innate, but what you desire can be trained. Dark skin, light skin, straight hair, curly hair. Those are things that you learn. A man has to learn to train himself to desire his wife, train himself to find his wife attractive. A woman's challenge now is much more in in creating peer groups and creating people she looks up to who dress as a Jewish woman should dress. All of us are faced with the great challenge of living in the consumer generation where we are bombarded and bombarded with constant needs and needs and needs. And it's no longer something you want. And luxuries are no longer luxuries. 
<coughs> very quickly it goes from being a luxury to something that you want to something that you absolutely have to have. If I don't have the iPhone 12, my life is just going to be... <coughs> I'm a misery. I will not... I just can't... I can't... can't. And when you become a part of the consumer generation, especially when you're involved in competitive consumerism, you are destined to be unhappy. And destined to be unhappy because you're changing the direction in life. You're no longer focused on growing and accomplishing, and you're going to create an inner disharmony. There'll be a hole in your soul. And more than that, you're training yourself to ever desire, ever desire, ever desire, and you can't possibly ever, all the money in the world cannot buy you all that you desire because there's always going to be new, always going to be new features, a new model, a new brand, and you're destined to be unhappy. The Torah wants us to be happy, and the Torah guided us that way. And I'd like to close with a story that I think well encapsulates the story. There was a young man who was doing well. He was making a lot of money, and he was a good guy. He was giving not just mice, but he was giving chomish. And one day he says to his wife, you know, I want to buy, uh, you know, I want to buy a Jaguar. Very nice model Jaguar. I want to buy it. His wife says, I don't think it's appropriate. Fell says, listen, I'm giving 20% of my earnings to Sadaka. <clears throat> Every obligation I'm meeting. And we have plenty of extra money. What's wrong? Am I getting it? His wife says, I don't know. The neighbors will be jealous. It's not right. I think it's too luxurious. You shouldn't. He says, I do want. She says, don't. Do, don't, don't find it. She says, go, go ask Rav Chaim. Go ask Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Chaim Kanievsky says, you should buy the Jaguar, go buy it. So, happened to be, he was a Balsadoka, and he had an entree into Rav Chaim, he flies to Eretzrol, and he gets an appointment, and he meets Rav Chaim, and he explains the problem. He says, I'm making a lot of money. Baruch Hashem, I give a lot of stock, I give Chomish 20%, I give to Tzedakah, no, and I have lots of extra money, and I want to buy a car. It's a very nice car, it's a luxury car, but my wife says it might make other people jealous, it's not right, I want to buy it, she doesn't want me... Rebbe, what should I do? Rav Chaim looks at him and says, um, tell me, have you learned through Shas yet? No. No. Have you mastered a Masechta? Is there one Masechta that you really, really own? No. A Perik? A, a, a Perik in, in, in a Masechta? No. One area of Halacha is at least one area in Halacha that you've mastered that you really own? No. Rav Chaim said, you can get the car. No one's going to be jealous of you get the car. And I want to share with you what Rav Chaim was saying to him. You see, in Rav Chaim's world, he lives in a world of reality. In the real world, tinsel and gold doesn't really shine. Believe me, when you leave this planet, as they're not going to ask you how much money you had, they're not going to ask you how large your home was, how fancy your suits were, how beautiful your car was, it doesn't matter. We get fooled, we get duped, the smoke in the mirrors, we get so caught up, what Rav Chaim was saying to this person was, get a grip on reality. <clears throat> what you're considering so valuable, so important, is tinsel, and it's distracting, it's never going to fill your soul, and it's going to keep on making you hungry and hungry. Torah wants us to be happy, the Torah gave us a system to grow, and Hashem wants us to use it properly, use this life as we're supposed to. And now, I apologize, I spoke a little bit, lo- a lot longer than I wanted to, but I, um, I get a little bit... Um, especially heated on this topic, but I will open the floor now to questions. And please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions. They could be on this topic or another topic. You could also, if you're shy, you could... Um, technical difficulty. Uh-oh. Did this not tape right? Um, can you hear me? I hope you can hear me. 
Eight, I see technical difficulty. Um, raise your hand, please. I hope, yeah. Okay, Avrami, I hope you can hear me good. Avrami, you have the floor. Hi. Yeah, Okay, good. I got nervous. I saw technical difficulty. Oh, no. How are you? I really love this stream. This stream is amazing. I hope, uh, I hope I don't have a strange uh, profile picture on it. But, uh, if I do, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I really love the schmooze. Uh, I have a sort of a dual question because I had a question in the beginning of the schmooze. When it comes to the Rashi, Rashi says that if you can't have something, you can't have the meat, so you shouldn't desire the meat because then you'll just be desiring something you can't reach. But if you're rich, so I understand that part. Okay. But if you're rich, then you should desire it. Not that you should, but then you, it's okay. If you wish to, you can. Not that you should. Okay. No. It's just if you wish to, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. If you could afford it, there's nothing wrong with desiring meat. I like chicken. You like meat. Nothing wrong with it. But if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't. Ah, okay, fine. So that being said, isn't there a concept that a person should live according to their wealth? So if a person is extremely wealthy, they shouldn't drive a Toyota Camry. Right. The person yes. There is. Yes. Absolutely. There is such a wealth. But then again, that's Mosra. So right. how does that so, Right. There is such a concept that's called a Gentile concept, foisted upon us by the Gentile world, has no basis whatsoever in Torah. As a matter of fact, there's a book that's well worth reading. It was written quite a number of years ago called The Millionaire Next Door. And when you read it, you'll begin to realize that people who have a lot of wealth don't need to show it. I have a rule. The more, the more money you spend, the more poor you are. And people who are really wealthy don't need, by the way, even Warren Buffett, who's supposed to be pretty wealthy, I mean, right, for a long time, the second wealthiest guy in the world, he used to drive a beat-up old car. Because, you see, nowhere does it say that you have to show people how your wealth... By the way, wealth means, real wealth means you could do with your life what you want to do. Real ashiras means you could do with your time, do with your life what you want to do. Real Ashiras doesn't mean gaudy, doesn't mean putting up chandeliers, doesn't mean showing people how rich I am, look at me, I'm rich. What, what does that have to do with the, with the Torah? What does that have to do with anything? If Hashem grants you wealth, use it. Use it appropriately. If you have extra wealth, you could use it for stucker projects. <clears throat> extra wealth, you could use your time as you wish to. That's great. But I never saw anywhere the idea that if you grant the great wealth, you should live in a big fancy home. All right, Nebuch, if, you know, if you ask me, is it wrong if you could really afford it? Is it wrong? I would say, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I would say this. I would say it's not fair to your kids. Let's assume I had $100 billion. More modest, $100 million, let's say, right? And, and I actually cared about my children. I wouldn't possibly build a mansion. Why? Because I'm destroying them. You know what it's like? I was a high school Rebbe for many years. And it was one kid in the class whose dad was rich. And the kid was, it was a nebuch. The poor kid, it was a nebuch. Everyone spoke to him because he's the rich kid in the class. He's got the fancy home. and You're ruining your kid. And by the way, the amount of problems that rich kids have, and you look at the depression rate, and you look at the problems, even if you feel it's not going to destroy you, and even if you feel you want it, have Rahmanis on your kids. Don't do it to them. Don't destroy them. So answer to your question is yes, there is a concept of using your wealth in that way, but it's not a Jewish concept. I'm sorry. Okay, so then, and Darth yeah. Vader is not a strange uh, icon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not that one. <laughs> but 
But then we we all also know people who are who have money and they're not they're not showboaty. They don't really show it that much. Right. And there are people who do show it and you know, it's just a cool part of them and the ones who don't show it, they're they're sort of still able to be Samantha girl. So obviously all these concepts of focusing that Hashem gave it to me and knowing Chavos three different reasons why all these things are helpful. But how, how does a person, like what else could a person work on? Like let's say, let's say Baruch Hashem, a person, a person makes an enormous business deal. Now that they, they have tons of money. So how, how do they prevent it from going to their head and, and still just You're live, at- like the same way they live without it? Right. You're asking me, how does a person win one of the most difficult Nishonas in life? <laughs> You're asking a good question. You know, everybody says, oh, I, I, if I were granted money, I would not be a Balgaiva. I wouldn't be showy. And you know what the Chavetz Chaim says? The Chavetz Chaim gives a mushal. You want to hear a mushal to that? <clears throat> he says there are two guys walking outside a bar. And suddenly a drunk rolls out the bar and rolling on the floor. And one of the fellows turns to his friend and says, you know what, look at that guy, he's rolling on the floor. If I, were, if I got drunk, I would never deface myself that way. I'd, I'd have self-respect. His friend says to him, idiot. If you were drunk, you'd be drunk. You're saying that now because you're not drunk. If you'd be drunk, you'd be rolling on the floor like him. Everyone says, if I had lots of money, I wouldn't build a palatial manor. I wouldn't show off. I, yeah, right, go try it. <laughs> it is one of the most difficult nishonos in life. And I, you know, everyone says, oh, I, I, I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I'll take that nishonos. And what, they hap- what happens very quickly is some people, a few Yechidim succeed, most fail. What can I tell you? It's a very, very difficult Nisayan. You know, everyone says, I'll take that Nisayan, but suddenly if they get it, they see it's not so sweet, it's not so desirous, not so simple. All right? Okay. Okay. Then, a follow-up, one, a third follow-up. Okay. One more. Yeah. <laughs> I could go on and on. But, but let's say practical things, right? I think a lot of people suffer from, from a disease called Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> so, in, in, and people just, you know, it's it's common practice. You walk down the street and every single front stairs is covered with an Amazon box. So it's just normal occurrences all over the place. Right. That's not, that isn't necessarily a disease. By the way, I do shopping <laughs> on Amazon, meaning I have I buy tea on Amazon, I buy Fruit bars on Amazon. I buy, yeah, so you're yeah, right. Yeah. Packages come all the time. Books come all the time. But I, I don't think the luxury. I mean, I, you know, I could buy them for more money in a local supermarket and waste time. But it's you know, it's a lot more convenient. But all right, yeah. Let's let's say there. So the question. I'm sorry. So, so the question is, let's say let's say something you you don't need, but you have a practical use for. Like I don't know, you have a, a better toothbrush. You know the the new. We, you know, the new tooth vibrating toothbrush that, right. that also, you know... Sonic, three- Sonic. It uses sound waves, not uh, not bristles, right? Okay. <laughs> I got it. Right. Okay. Um, so listen, again, if you can afford it, there's nothing wrong with using it, having it. If, in fact, it's better, you just have to be very careful. You have to distinguish between needs and wants and then luxuries. So, for instance, the infrared toothbrush, I think, is a luxury. The self-heating infrared toothbrush that lights up in your in your glove box, you know, while you're driving, I, you know, meaning there's a certain point where it's clearly it's not, you know. So again, if you could afford it, there's nothing wrong with use things that are useful, things that have utility, things that make your life easier. I think it's a it's a huge bracha, but again, you have to be very careful because we're living in the consumer age, we're constantly bombarded by new needs, new needs, new needs. And you have to be very, very guarded and very careful. 
So then, aside from the fourth follow-up, wow, go for it, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Aside from just just you know working on that and trying not to get sucked up into materialism <clears throat> and changing changing what you have Taivos for, but but can can you diminish Taivo also? Meaning, yeah, there's gonna be a certain level of Taivo, but if you're if you're constantly, I guess. Refusing the taiva and exerting self-control, which is really, which is really real. That's actually real freedom. So, so then, you're not. You're dimi- Can't you diminish yes, the taiva? Uh, yes, you can. You could down. increase or diminish taiva. You're not getting rid of it. You're not getting rid of it. Um, so, you know, yes, you can. You do, there are various things you could do that increase it. Various things that you could do that decrease it. But at the end of the day, it's part of the human being. As long as you're breathing, as long as you're alive, certainly as long as you're healthy, it's a part. So therefore, learning to sublimate it, learning to direct it properly, learning to desire what you should desire is a whole lot easier and a whole lot more successful. Okay, yeah, it really makes it sound like for, for when it comes to Taivus Nashim, for a single Bachar, it's it's a very difficult and almost losing battle just because of the world we live in. So I guess it's, it's difficult to come up with, you know, you try to keep right. your eyes where they're supposed to be, but it's difficult to know how right. to... You, do, you work on it, you try, you try your best, try to diminish as much as you can, try not to think about those things. <clears throat> Hashem helps. But right, at the end of the day, it's going to be a very, very real battle. All right. <clears throat> J- okay. Rami, Shkaya, thank, thank you. you very much. Okay, very good. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, um, Tamar, you have the floor. I think you do. Yeah. Hello? I think you have the floor. Tamar Gessner, you have the floor. If you don't want the floor, you cannot have the floor. But I'm, I'm not hearing you. Um, your hand is up. I'm going to... Maybe raise your hand again. I'll, I'll shut it down. If you want to raise your hand again... Uh, You'll try it later, I guess, because I'm not hearing you. Um, okay. Hi, right, Josh. Josh, let's uh, let's get you. Uh, I think it says talking permitted now. Am I not? Hi working? there. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Shalom aleichem. Hi. Shalom aleichem. A question about the uh, example. Yep. Uh, at the end of the shmuz, the shmuz was awesome. By the way, thank right. you so much for that. Is that if the gentleman went and he saw Rav Kenievsky and then he, let's say he answered yes, he asked him, did you, do you know a parak, a masekta in the Talmud? And he said, yes. And he said, is there a part in there that you mastered? And he said, yes. And he said, yes, yes, yes. Would Rav Kenievsky tell him then don't buy the Jaguar? Cause that know. part I, I got disconnected there. I, I don't know exactly the answer. Um, maybe we're told not to buy. I mean, the point that he was saying was no one's going to be jealous of you. You have so little accomplishments. You're so, you know, no one is going to be jealous just because of your trinkets. In other words, if you're a person who's accomplished and done and you also have something nice, people may say, oh, look at him. He's got he's got it all. They may be jealous of you. If you're a person who accomplished nothing, all you have is the, the window dressings. No one's going to be jealous of you. Don't worry about it. It's like, a, you know, again, I don't know how literal it was as much as figurative to, to point out that when you're focused on things of such little value, they're exactly that. The trinkets, the gold, the glitter, it's not really significant. No one's going to be jealous. 
Got it. Okay. Right. okay good. Okay, Josh. Thanks for the clarification. Nice, good. Sure. Nice talk to you. Okay. Let's take another question. Um, okay. Tomorrow we'll give it another shot. Is your hand up still? Let's see. We'll give it a try again. Yes. Hello. Hi. You don't sound Hi. like so, tomorrow. I'm using my wife's computer. I my guess. Name's Jacob. Yeah. It doesn't. It says Sorish near now, but okay. Good. Yes. Anyway. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Jacob. Hi. Um, thank you so much. That really was an amazing schmooze. So I had two questions. Question number one, regarding um, what Rebbe said, just you know, generally speaking, in terms of not, you know, I guess buying more than what you need, and uh, mm-hmm. if you are, you know, amongst a group of people that do, um, you know, I guess live a certain way, they, you know, they have maybe high expectations in terms of what food to serve for guests. You know, even in the yeshiva kolel community, uh, you know, it's yeah. kind of expected that you would serve the single guys that come over meat, you know, and that you dress your kids a certain way. So it's not really a situation where you could change your group like that's you're with you're in the kolel community. And, you know, it's, you know, stressful because a lot of people even in that community do um, they can't afford it, but they still right. feel like they have to because everyone else is. So how do you handle that type of situation? That's a very tough, you're right, it's a very tough situation. I mean, you know, on the one hand, Baruch Hashem, we have such ashira, such wealth, that we're able to actually ask these kind of questions, but you're right, there's a real cost to it. It's, it, it is a major challenge, and, and, you, and by the way, you don't want your kids to have, as your kids get older especially, you don't want them to have less than everyone else. You, it's not fair to a kid, if everyone in the class has whatever it may be, uh, you know, it's not fair to them, um, that they don't have, you know, so you do have to you do have to use some wisdom there, and it's and it's very difficult. Um, I don't have a great solution if that's you know if you're learning well in that yeshiva that kolo, and you know that part of the cost of that is that you you know you have to you have to sort of bear with it. You know, I, I wish I had a good solution to that, but but again, I, I want to stress this that. You know, if you're able to do without, that's great. But you got to, as your kids get older, especially, you really have to make sure that they're they don't have a sense of being deprived of, uh, you know, not having what they need. And and if everyone in the class has it, and they don't have it, it's a real problem. So you know, it is a pro- it is one of the costs of living in such an opulent society, such an opulent uh, generation. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay. And then in terms of my second question, this doesn't really go to you know, I guess the main focus of the schmooze, but something that Rebbe mentioned, if, you know, my understanding of Olam Haba, from the little understanding that I have, is that one second of Olam Haba is, the Hanada that you have in one sec- of one second of Olam Haba is worth more than, worth, worth more than all the Hanada that ever existed in Olam Haza, that anyone ever had combined, etc. So, how could, if a person is right to receive any form, any measure of Olam Haba, how could that in any way be paid back in Olam Haza? Even if you gave that guy the greatest life in the world, it would never be paid back properly. And then also, I guess, on the flip side, if a person is, you know, if a, if a Russia is supposed to, or Tzadik is supposed to, you know, get any level of, of Gehenim in, um, you know, in, in the next world, that can't be paid back in this world either because any second in Gehenim is worth more than all of the pain and all of the suffering that a person would suffer in this world. So how could that ever be paid back in any way uh, in Olam Haza? Okay, it's a good question. Um, 
you know, it really, it's predicated on the assumption that Hashem really owes us anything anyway. Um, one of the most basic concepts that a person has to fully understand, the Chavos has explained to us that if we were ever to make a cheshbon with Hashem, what Hashem has done for me versus what I've done for Him, we'd be so far in the red, we'd be so behind the eight ball, don't go there. So, in truth, Hashem doesn't owe us anything. If you were the biggest tzaddik in the world, you'd spend all of your, every effort, every moment of your life serving Hashem, the amount that you receive from Hashem, you have air to breathe, you have food, you have clothing, you, you exist. And Hashem is giving you so much more than in reality, there's nothing owed. Now, there's a special chesed Hashem that Hashem allows that we get credited, you know, in the world to come, as if none of this costs us anything, as if Hashem didn't give us things and we're credited. But really Hashem owes us nothing. Now, on some level Hashem feels there's justice and, and let's say Russia did something good in this world and would gain Olam Haba, but Hashem doesn't want him in Olam Haba. So Hashem will pay him back in this world. Is it a diminished currency? No question about it. But to that fellow right now, that's what he wants anyway. It's, he would trade it. If you'd ask him now, Olam Haba or, or, or Alexis? Om Habor, $10 million. He'd take $10 million anyway right now. So since to, to him anyway it's worth it, he would take it. You know, therefore he's given it in this world, and that's uh, that's the the ultimate punishment that you pay back your good in this world. So it could be I'm not answering your question, because it could be I don't know the answer, but <laughs> but it's somewhere in this in this area is is, I believe, the answer to your question. Okay, right. I hear what Rebbe's saying, um, and just in terms of how Hashem doesn't owe it, but yeah, it's still difficult for me to understand that even if to the Russia, he, you know, like Asa, like he would rather have that, you know, million dollars. In this so you world take it, right? You take, so take it. Here it is. If you would trade it and you take it, here it is. It's not but, unfair. You would take not, it. I, sorry. No, I was just saying that that's not MS, though, meaning that's not what the guy is supposed to actually get. Like a guy, you know, he didn't. Because, he realized what he was doing, but he did a mitzvah. So he's right. supposed to be so, and, and Hashem owes him. And Hashem owes him, right? Right, Hashem is supposed Hashem to Hashem doesn't owe anything. Reward that he's supposed to get for doing that mitzvah. Hashem owes nothing. Hashem created a system, totally bechesed, that even though you owed nothing, you're given things in the world to come, bechinam. Totally bechinam. However, there are things that you could do to lose that. And then we go to the other cheshman. We go to back to square one. We go back to what you owe versus what you did, and since you take it anyway, you know, meaning you're assuming, again, that Hashem owes me. Hashem owes nothing. After everything I've done, I'm still way, way behind. Hashem has done way more for me. <clears throat> Therefore, if Hashem does a chesed, bechinam, and literally bechinam does something by giving me olam haba, that's great. <clears throat> but for whatever reason, Hashem decides not to. He doesn't have to. And go back to the old system where let's let's do, let's talk din. What you gave versus what Hashem gave and then we'll see what you really owe. Okay, and then does that also, um, that same cheshbon work on the, the flip side? Because you could, you know, I guess, maybe, I mean, I, I don't know if it does, because the tzaddik, like the, you know, the whatever punishment he was supposed to get in, in you know, in the next world in Gehenim, like that's not going to actually, you know, correspond properly to whatever suffering he gets in this world. Right, so, but Hashem, it, it, sometimes a special chesed, Hashem will give him punishment in this world, which is much easier, so that he doesn't have to suffer in the world to come. I, truth, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I think you're asking a better question than my answer. Um, I believe, I, when I was a high school rebbe, I used to try to say the words, 
Enini Yodea, I don't know. I don't know. I think you asked a better question than my answer is. So let's let's think about it. You're going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. I think it could be somewhere in what I'm I'm saying is the answer, but I'm not really that clear on it. So okay, but, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's take one more. Eli Kirat, is this what I think it is? Let me see. Eli Kirat, let me see if I give you the right ability to talk. I'm going to try. I don't think I can. Wait, let me can. I can. I'm going to try. Eli Kirat, you're allowed to talk, I think. Allowed to talk. Yes, you can talk. Oh, you can hear me? I can, yes. I just want, it's actually Alicia. I put Eli because everywhere I go, people are like, Mrs. Kirat, how are you? Uh, <laughs> I just. <laughs> are you related? Who's, so who's your father? Uh, Benny Kirat. Is he a physician, an anesthesiologist? No, 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 no. I'm from Miami. You, oh. so I got you to come uh, when I was in Terrace Time, right? How gone? Oh, oh right. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Hi, hi. Hi. <laughs> so, okay. so I, I just wanted to know this year is like so amazing. I'm wondering if it's on the schmooze yet because uh, uh, I want to share it. And it's so. Okay, so it'll be out t- tomorrow. Um, what, what happens is we send out the replay tomorrow. Are you on the schmooze um, email list? We're on the schmooze right, WhatsApp. All right, so <laughs> join yeah, us. I'm on the WhatsApp. Yeah. All right, so it'll be sent out on the WhatsApp group. We send out the replay uh, tomorrow, so you'll be, you'll be able to pick it up uh, tomorrow, Mitzvahim. You can download it. Yeah, you can download it. Uh, yeah, it also it'll be on the okay. podcast. It'll be on the, the Schmooze Live after it's recorded. It goes onto the podcast. Goes onto Schmooze dot com. Goes onto Schmooze app, and it gets sent oh, out to WhatsApp. Okay, group. perfect. All right. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, good, thank good. You so much. Okay, all right, all right folks. Sure. We've I think I've overstayed my welcome before they go charge me overtime on Zoom. I want to thank everyone for joining. <laughs> I hope you join uh, next week. Um, we're going to continue Wednesday night. Next week, eventually, we're going to send it back to Thursday night. But for another week or two, we're going to keep on Wednesday night. Um, I thank you for joining. I hope you have a good Shabbos, and hope to see you next week. Thank you.